Thanksgiving is a holiday with historical roots and religious associations. But could there also be secular value in taking time to reflect and celebrate important values in life? That's an especially pressing question today, this year, when Thanksgiving is clouded by a pandemic, among other global crises. It seems there's less to celebrate. People are canceling their travel plans. Many states are reimposing lockdowns. Infection rates are skyrocketing. Hospitals are overwhelmed. And on top of all of that, millions of people are unemployed and struggling financially. In these grim times, it's more important than usual to take time to reflect on the values that are important in life. And without any implication of minimizing the difficult times that we're living through, and without uh, being anything like a Pollyanna, there is in fact a lot of positive, life-affirming things in life to focus on and to take inspiration from. And there are important philosophical lessons to underline here about what makes such values and human progress even possible in the first place. Well, welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we are going to discuss this topic, giving thanks to unsung heroes, what to be thankful for in a time of adversity. My name is Ben Baer. I will shortly be joined by Ilan Giorno. Hi, Ilan, are you out there? Hey, Ben. So Thanksgiving time, what is there to say philosophically? Well, I wanted to start with, you know, what is Thanksgiving? And, and it be, primarily because, as you said at the beginning, it, it, it has so many religious connotations and what, neither of us is religious. And I think there's still a value to the holiday. And, you know, when I moved to this country many years ago, I, I heard the standard account, the conventional view of what Thanksgiving is about. And it was, it kind of struck me as off, even though that is sort of historically rooted. It's the idea that God made the bountiful harvest possible. And I don't know, that rubs me the wrong way. I don't think it's actually true. What, what do you make of that? Well, I'm no expert on the history here, but I know enough to know that there is there is a debate uh, that often happens this time of year about who had the first Thanksgiving. Was it the Puritans in Massachusetts Bay Colony or was it certain settlers in Virginia, 1619 or 1621? Um, but all of this sort of is beside the point because even uh, those events that happened in those years weren't on the same date as the holiday that we presently celebrate. Uh, in fact, Thanksgiving celebrations in early America weren't originally associated with just one date in November. Uh, that was something that only started with uh, a proclamation by Abraham Lincoln in 1863. And that's a whole separate interesting story we could talk about later if someone wanted to ask about it. But in fact, uh, it there were multiple days of Thanksgiving uh, throughout the year uh, as holy days, uh, as a as a relic from the Anglican Church uh, that was picked up by uh, the Puritans, among others. Uh, though these were days of Thanksgiving that were often alternating with days of fast. And the Puritans were more into the fast days than they were into the Thanksgiving days. Uh, and what the reason that these were done was uh, to mark the occasion of unexpected good or bad fortune. So if there were if there was a good harvest, if there was some kind of military victory, then a day of Thanksgiving would be decreed. If there was bad fortune, if there was plague, if there was drought, then a day of fast uh, would be 
would be announced. Both of these, you know, on the on the premise that that repentance or thanks to God was due for the bad or the good fortune. Philosophically speaking, this was very much in keeping with the very Christian idea that was embraced, especially by the Protestant Puritans, that it's God's grace or providence that's responsible for good or bad fortune, uh, that human beings don't deserve any credit for the good things that happen, though in interestingly, they do deserve the blame for the bad things that happen. Um, this comes right out of the idea, the Christian idea of original sin, which the Puritans especially took very seriously. Um, Ayn Rand, when she wrote about the concept of original sin in Atlas Shrugged, called it a mockery of morality because it has it implies that we are to blame for choices that we never made, that we can never be responsible for our own moral perfection. Uh, that's something we could talk more about if we wanted to, but uh, when you look at some of the things for which these days of Thanksgiving were actually uh, assigned, things like a plentiful harvest, things like a military victory, these are in fact human achievements. They're not due to prayer. Uh, and when you think about something, especially like agriculture, this is one of the first human scientific discoveries that you could regulate the production of food rather than having to gather it. Uh, there is good reason to celebrate here uh, a successful harvest. It's not an accident that we get a successful harvest, even though there are, you know, it can be a, an accident that you don't when there's when there's a drought. There, that really isn't up to you. So they, they, it was the reverse of the truth. Uh, and of course, in our modern age, we uh, there's far more intelligence than that that goes into the production not only of food but all other forms of incredible abundance that we're that we're privy to, and it's. It was Rand's view that it, that production was one of our most profound moral achievements uh, because it's what it's the cause of human life, and definitely worth celebrating. So you can strip away the uh, original religious meaning of this holiday, and uh, there's a real secular value that's worth celebrating here. Yeah, and I think it's even more so more pronounced in the modern world than it was in the Puritans' time when we're surrounded by, we're on Zoom, right? We're doing a live video broadcast. Each of us has got a number of computers around us and, our, and we're just, we're in the future in the sense that technology is so far galloped to the point where our lives, you know, it's, it's almost invisible just how much technology we have. We take so much of it for granted and all of that. So the orientation, I, I'm, I think is really powerful here is to zero in on this fact, which is easy to overlook. And I think many people overlook it. So all of the things that we are so uh, fortunate to have in our world. So you mentioned agriculture, like you go to the supermarket and, you know, leaving aside the panic buying that's happened during the pandemic, which has kind of created dis dislocations, but the supermarkets are just, you know, loaded with a bounty every single day. We don't have to, you know, the, the, the vicissitudes of, of weather are not an issue. If you want to buy blueberries in December or whenever you want, you can have them. And it's all thanks to people looking at the world, using their rational judgment and creating values. And I think that's incredible an achievement and it's it's just a daily phenomenon but i think we want to pause now at thanksgiving to reflect on that because so many bad things are happening in the world it's it's important to kind of reorient one's focus towards what's really important 
and not to minimize the things that are bad and that are important, but just what is the source of value in the, in the world and that makes human life uh, possible and, and help, is going to help us get out of this pandemic. And there's no question of that. And for me, there, there's just so many stories that we've come across just in the pandemic of people, individuals, groups of people working to combat the pandemic itself, to, to uh, sort of accommodate the growing demand for need for human values. And just to name a few, and we can dig into these, I think the most obvious and the one that a lot of people, at least for a while, recognized are the people who work in the healthcare industries, doctors and nurses, and, and just legions and legions of people who are in support roles. When you are sick, when you need a test, you need to go and, and check. And they have, you know, it, it, people might have forgotten what the early days of the pandemic were, but I was just rereading some of the articles from back in March and April when things were out of control in New York City, for example. And the kind of decisions doctors and nurses were, were having to make and, you know, they were lacking personal protective equipment, as we know, they were lacking knowledge about how to combat the virus. And they came to work every day. They showed up and they learned new things about how to deal with the pandemic to the point where I think they know a lot more than they did months ago and they're better able to treat people both to diagnose and then there's also uh, things they can do. All of that is thanks to people using their rational mind, creating new value, new knowledge about how to deal with this life-threatening uh, virus. And that, you know, what really struck me at the beginning of the pandemic is people spontaneously at around 7 p.m. in many cities would just go to their windows and bang on pots and pans and play trumpets and honk their horns or they would a mass outside a hospital to show thanks every single day for weeks and weeks and weeks. Sadly, that's really faded. I think there's partly through pandemic fatigue, but it's not happening anymore. And it's understandable. You, you're not going to show, I can understand why people are not doing that, but it doesn't erase the fact that these people are, are still showing up to work to do the work that they love, that takes an incredible amount of dedication and knowledge. Uh, and that, they are heroes who are undervalued. I think people recognize them in many ways as heroes, but they're undervalued fundamentally, I think. And it, it's worth thinking about that at this time of year. Yeah, can I pause on that one? Because yeah. so I've, I've, I know a, a very good number of physicians, uh, including uh, you know, I've, I've, I've lived with them. I've seen them doing their work. I've seen them, the, the amount of training, number of years of practice, and, and learning and testing and uh, that, that go into acquiring this medical knowledge is not trivial. Just like, you know, the, the point I made before about how uh, this is not just an accident that we, we get uh, crops, it's, it's due to human agency. Likewise, with, with medicine and with healthcare, it's not an accident. Somebody's put in a lot of work to learn not only the not only the uh, the accumulated medical knowledge of the ages, but uh, as you point out, uh, making new discoveries, you know, it, at at the job. Which so there's you know there's a number of people have discussed the the, the death rates for uh, for COVID and uh, how they're not right now as high as they were earlier in the year. Now it's not yet clear if it's going to stay that way because we're having a a new spike in infections, but. There have been advances in therapeutics, 
And that's due in no small part to the efforts of the doctors and the scientists on the ground, learning as they go, usually at risk to their own lives. Uh, and you've got to stop and recognize that rather than just saying, oh, this is no thing. Uh, no, if it's, if it's getting better, it's because somebody who recognized what the problem was figured out a way to solve it. Yeah, and I, I wanted to start with people who work in healthcare, doctors and nurses in particular, because I think they are just taken for granted, I think, leaving aside the pandemic, and I think it's still happening in the pandemic, in, this, in the sense that as you, to get to the point of having that knowledge and those skills, it takes, as you put it, it takes years and years and real dedication and it is, this is just an inherently stressful job being a doctor. I mean, there's a lot of decisions you have to make and hard decisions. And it's, it's what we've learned and has become much more obvious. I mean, it was true to some degree before the pandemic, but even more so during the pandemic, that they work in a system that is sort of is morally exploitative in the sense that these people love their work. They want to show up. They, this is what they signed up for. So there's not a surprise but it's a system that doesn't fully value them. As we saw in many hospitals, there were just bad decisions made about how, to, how much supplies to give doctors and nurses, how, how much protection they were uh, afforded during the early days when we didn't really know how well this is transmitted. And just the system in general takes doctors and nurses for granted in the sense that they're just expected. They'll always be there. If you're sick, there's always going to be a doctor. That's sort of the attitude people have come to accept because the system is so socialized. There really isn't a sense for how much am I actually paying for this? And insurance companies are sort of part of the intermediaries and that kind of mask the real costs uh, to the point where, I mean, it's, it's remarkable, but during the pandemic, there have been hospitals that are struggling. They're, they're facing bankruptcy because the, all the economics of the system are so dis distorted that, it, you know, they're struggling and there's even shortages of, of doctors and nurses to right now, one of the, the, the crises that's happening with the infection rates going up is that a lot of places are still understaffed and it's not easy. You can't just call a temp agency and have 16 new doctors. It, it doesn't work quite like that. Um, so there, there is a sense in which the, the resources that they need aren't readily available for them. And I think that's partly it's, there isn't an appreciation for what they're going through and what they need to do their job, uh, which is sad. And, and I, I know a couple of people who are physicians, uh, friends of mine, and it's every day I think about what they show up to at work. And it's, it isn't just the routine things that they signed up for. This is a, a new phenomenon, right? It's a novel coronavirus. There's so much unknown in the early days and still, uh, and the kind of risks that they're bearing and being made to bear you know, at the, at the risk of their own lives. There's stories, har harrowing stories of doctors showing up to, to work and having to update their wills because the risks were just completely unknown. It, you know, sleeping in separate rooms from their families and their children so that they wouldn't risk infecting, bringing the virus home. Just incredible things being done. And I, I don't think we can say enough to really fully acknowledge all the things that are going on and that doctors are facing and, and um, so I, to me, this is one huge uh, uh, group of people and just a whole area of human endeavor that deserves recognition uh, and, and not to be taken for granted, which I think is part of where we are. And Ilan, you, you actually did a series of articles uh, for New Ideal. Uh, one of the articles was on 
this subject, but you also wrote a couple of others on some of the other unsung heroes. And who, who else did you have in mind? Yeah, so I, I mean, we're going to talk about a number of, uh, of these cases, but I want to just make clear that we're not trying to convey an exhaustive list of these are the only people who are heroes or unsung heroes. There's just so many and we won't, we won't get to cover them all. But these are the ones that I think are salient and worth flagging because they're the ones that are likeliest to, to go and be taken for granted and unrecognized. So the other, I mean, two others that I think are huge are, one is the whole uh, uh, sort of array of people who are responsible for our digital world today. So people who created the internet infrastructures on which Zoom and Google Mail and Dropbox and Microsoft Teams, all those uh, services and apps, they operate on vast networks that are really hard to maintain and it took decades to get to the point where there is sufficient capacity on the internet that, you know, when a lot of the country moved to remote working, remote school, uh, the, the demand on the internet was enormous. And what happened? Did we see the internet slow to a crawl? Did it collapse in daily blackouts? Did it, be, you know, was there the equivalent of a paper roll short, you know, toilet paper shortage you know, poor supply relative. No, there's nothing like that. In fact, I think that the big story of the pandemic that hasn't been acknowledged enough is the internet didn't break with massive increases in demand. And now all of that is just, the, it's an incredible achievement to have the internet in the first place. But then if you think um, with Zoom, for example, Zoom had published some of the data about the number of uh, the peak number of daily users or, or uh, meeting participants. And about a year ago in December, they had about 10 million per day. So people joining meetings. By uh, April or June of this year, they had 300 million per day. So if you just think of that, that's like everyone in New York City plus a few of the neighboring uh, uh, boroughs of, of uh, oh, sorry, not boroughs, a few of the neighboring cities outside of New York City, 10 million people that's going from that to practically everyone in the United States, 300 million. That is a huge increase in demand. And yet not only did it not break and not collapse, it, there was room for more, right? We, we've, we've been doing this for almost nine months now where mo so much of business life and, and school life is, is online. So there's the, the founders of the companies that we think of like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates who kind of put the foundations in and Sergey Brin and the folks at Google and, and now the, the folks at Zoom, but then on, they're building on foundations and then all the other companies that have come in and the engineering talent and, the, and sort of the network knowledge has grown to the point where I don't, I'm not an engineer, so I couldn't fully explain it to you, but the, from what I understand, there's just so much elasticity to the, the capacity of the internet. It's an incredible achievement. And it, it's to the point where and I find myself sometimes having this attitude too. And then I remind myself it's not the right attitude. It's, I get frustrated if my Wi-Fi is choppy. But then I think, well, I, <laughs> I have Wi-Fi and I'm fortunate to have broadband and like a lot of people and it works it is, and it's made possible the continuation of our work and, and just being connected to other people. And so, here's, yeah. here's the way of putting this in perspective. It's not just that the... The, the tech entrepreneurs figured out a way for just barely enough of us to stay at home to get the bare necessities of our work done. They figured out how to do that 
for lots of us, for lots of stuff we probably didn't really need to do at home. And on top of that, they provided for our, our, our entertainment, right? So this is, we're not, so there's a, there's a global pandemic and they roll out probably the single largest mass commodification of personal luxury uh, that you've ever seen in history. Everybody can watch any TV show or movie they want to in the comfort of their home. Nothing like this happened during World War II. <laughs> it's, no, no. And if you think about, I mean, I mentioned the toilet paper shortages, but the, the real story here is not the shortages. The real story is the fact that, and this is, I think, is a subset or kind of a derivative point under the heading of the, the, just the technology achievement that we're living through. It's all the logistics that have gone into, you know, the, the fact that Amazon, for example, can promise two-day delivery or even three-day delivery or sometimes one-day delivery and UPS and, and even the grocery store, supplying a grocery store chain, given the increased demand, people cooking at home more, that is just the, 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 the field of logistics is incredibly complicated. Uh, and it, we haven't seen any kind of real breakdown that would be what the sort of thing where in World War II, people were rationing meat, you know, they were forced to, into rationing in the United Kingdom. And that lasted for years afterwards because the, the supply chains were just so badly ruptured during the war. So we're, we're in a point where there's re significant resilience in those kind of supply chains. So I, but I want to, so we've talked about people saving lives. We've talked about technology. We've talked about a little, a little about logistics and takeout and delivery. But the, I think we have to say something about the people doing basic scientific research right now and the, the, you know, the spectacular race for a vaccine. And, and I think if you ask me in March when we were all sort of waking up to the shock of what the severity of this situation is, people were talking about vaccines and we all were crossing our fingers hoping, yeah, how soon will this happen? And the idea was one vaccine in 12 months would have been a huge, huge achievement. Because if you think back to just the history of vaccines, it takes sometimes 10 to 15 years just to get it through all the tests and get it into people from, you know, from the lab into people's arms injections. And, you know, there have been faster cases. I read that there's been, I think it was the mumps vaccine was faster, something like four years, but that's a real outlier. And so we hear November, you know, on the, the few days before Thanksgiving, and there, there are two vaccines that, you know, preliminary data show they're 90 plus percent effective. And there's a third vaccine that is, that is at least 90 percent effective. Now, obviously, the studies have to be borne out and then we'll see how this turns out. But just that there are three so close to the finish line so quickly. This is a this is, you know, people talk about a moonshot. The moonshot took a long time compared yeah. to three vaccines of, of this caliber. And I could say a word about that because I, I really think this the, the 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 full story of these vaccines is still largely unappreciated. And there are people who look at how fast uh, they were developed and who actually think it's suspicious because uh, usually vaccines do take longer than this. But there's a 30-year story about how these new kinds of vaccines came to be developed. This is these are not your ordinary vaccines. These are created with a new technology called uh, mRNA. Uh, uh, mRNA vaccines are the new technology, which there are there are two or three scientists who've been pushing to develop these for 30 years since the early 90s. 
And they did it against all kinds of odds because nobody believed it could be done. They couldn't get funding. Uh, there, were, there were barriers to the research that they had to break down. Uh, they finally got uh, some lab tests from rats uh, in the early 2000s and they realized, no, there's something here. Uh, and what's, what I think people don't appreciate yet is that if these, if these COVID mRNA vaccines end up being successful and you have a proof of concept, uh, this is gonna completely revolutionize the creation and production of vaccines because unlike your standard vaccines where you have to take an actual version of the virus and grow a weakened form of it and then inject actual live virus into a person, which does have known side effects. I think that some people really overblow the side effects, but it has real side effects. The mRNA vaccines don't do that. They, they work with the barest minimum amount of genetic material that you can inject into the body cells, which will then create antibodies just with that bare minimum amount. And so one thing is that there's fewer side effects. And the second thing is you create this mRNA through genetic engineering rather than uh, taking the whole virus, which means once you decode the, the genetic code of the virus, you can basically plug it into a computer and create a made to order vaccine for, 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 basically any virus. And so th th this is going to, and there's already work being done on other viruses. There's already a mRNA uh, HIV vaccine that's being developed, um, which we've never had before. So, I mean, there's no telling what kind of, uh, how many lives this could end up saving, not just from COVID, but from so many other, uh, so many other diseases. And I, I, I think it's important to say that you know, I, I would hope that, so, you know, the story of the polio vaccine that Jonas Salk uh, sort of helped develop and, and spearheaded and, and made it, you know, brought it to people. And, and we now have, you know, a life-saving uh, treatment as a result of that. So Jonas Salk became really well known as a result of this. And I read a story that New York City, where the people were just so happy and relieved that the, the scourge of polio had been caged basically like it's not a thing anymore thanks to the vaccine years later people were so grateful and wanted to show their appreciation i think new york city offered what was then a big deal which is a ticker tape parade where you, people drive through town there's you know the rain down confetti and this is how people celebrated back then and i, I think he, he declined he didn't really want it but the fact is he was really well known i would hope that once we have some, if not one, then presumably several of these vaccines out there, bringing us back to the point where we can resume normal life. We have a, you know, we're not afraid of the vaccine anymore. Uh, we're not afraid of the virus anymore because of the vaccine. The, the scientists who create those deserve to be not only well-known, but fully appreciated. And that I would love to see schools named after them and, and city squares and streets and, and whatever tokens of recognition that we give to, to real achievements in, in our modern world. These are people who deserve it. And yet I, I, I bet you that other than Jonas Salk, um, people watching us probably couldn't tell you who, who devised you know, the vaccines for mumps or the vaccine for whooping cough. And, and so, so many of the other achievements that have brought human life made it much safer and longer. Um, let, let's hope there's a real change in that direction because that it, it's well-deserved. And it's, it's just, there's so much to learn from the, the dedication of the people who invested their lives in learning how to combat these pathogens. And, and I think we're on the cusp 
um, of, of conquering this one, which is incredible, really inspiring. Uh, so, so I mean, that's where I'd like to stop this conversation because, <laughs> but we can't really, because there's more going on here, right? And I want to bring this up, Ben, because, we, you know, before we, before we started the broadcast, I was talking separately about this and, and we've talked a little bit about the issue as well, which is, yes, people are feeling pandemic fatigue and there's this resistance to thinking about where we are. But there's also a kind of undercurrent of, well, of course, we're going to get a vaccine. And of course, the Internet's not going to collapse. And of, nobody's, it's almost like an entitlement or a taking for granted that these achievements are going to just show up. And how do they show up? Who makes them possible? Shrug. And I want so, people do. Yeah, they do. People do. They do. Or, the, you know, the, the famous thing the goods are here or the vaccines are here. It's like, what is the causality? Who made this possible? And I, I just want to get your perspective on this, Ben. What, I find it really offensive because I think there's so much to it, it's, it's unjust to the people who yeah. make it possible. But I just want to get your perspective. I mean, there's, there's such a thing as empty gratitude, even uh, among those who will at least nominally express it. Uh, and a few years ago, Elon, actually on the occasion of Thanksgiving, you, you gave, you wrote a piece, uh, which we'll link to later, uh, about Thanksgiving, uh, referencing this scene in Atlas Shrugged, uh, where one of the, one of the heroes of the novel is having Thanksgiving dinner with his family and his family says, thank you, uh, to everyone involved in the production of this meal, the cook, um, uh, the, the wife who selected the decorations for the, for the table, the, the good Lord, everybody except for the man who was actually creating the goods that uh, made this possible, not just the dinner, but was, which was basically keeping the whole economy running at the time. And that was the, the character, uh, Hank Reardon. So here they are relying on all of his largesse. They're, they don't actually bother to give him any credit. Uh, they even criticize him for wanting to defend himself against unjust charges that have been uh, registered against him at this point in the uh, in the story. So that was a scene that you cited, Ilan, and uh, it made me think of another scene in the same book earlier in the story, uh, where the same character uh, is is hosting a party for a, a bunch of equally uh, ungrateful people. Uh, but one character comes up to him. So uh, Reardon's hosting the party. Uh, this guy named Francisco comes up to him and comments on how Reardon's looking out the window. There's a storm going on. It's early December. There's this lovely party going on inside. And Francisco says to him, you stood here and watched the storm with the greatest pride one can ever feel in demonstration of your victory over that storm. And if it, were, if it weren't for you, most of those who are here would be left helpless at uh, the mercy of that wind in the middle of some such plane. And skipping a little Reardon's voice hardened, I haven't asked for gratitude, I don't need it. And Francisco says, I've not said you needed it, but of all those whom you are saving from the storm tonight, I am the one who will offer it. And I was reminded of this passage in particular because I mean, right now we really are facing a kind of metaphorical storm. Uh, the people who you've just uh, cataloged for us, Ivan, are the ones who are saving us from this storm. Uh, but 
most of the people at this party inside are not giving them credit for it. They're uh, even taking them for granted or worse. And there are a number of ways in which the way they take them for granted is by actually working to undercut them. And some of these you already hinted at, especially with doctors uh, talking about how people just sort of people expect that they're going to be taken care of if they get sick. They don't uh, think too much about how their uh, risky behavior might then get them sick, how they'll need that those services. Uh, but then there's sometimes a different crowd that complains that the doctors are paid too much. Uh, and then they demand a right to health care that that treats doctors as though they owe them their services. That, that anyone who demands healthcare, no matter how they got to be in need of it, even if it was through their own risky behavior, has a right uh, to their labor, to their expertise. There are then whole political programs that are set up to demand this right of healthcare, which, which will end up you know, making uh, uh, indentured servants, basically, of these doctors, because you can't just tax uh, other people to... Uh, bring healthcare into existence, somebody's actually got to provide it. Likewise with the scientists that you talked about who are giving us these innovations. Um, we've done previous episodes uh, of this program talking about how uh, all too often scientific expertise is rejected and doubted without basis. Now, it's, I mean, it's not the case that scientists are always right or that you should always listen to whatever scientist claims that their theory is science. But I mean, when the same scientific method that they have used in the past to save our lives in so many other ways is now applied to this case, uh, we should at least listen and consider it critically, but listen and, and look for the evidence. Um, many of us are alive, are alive today because of vaccines, uh, either because we got them when we were young or because somebody else did and then didn't get us infected. Um, but there's this whole anti-vaxxer movement that ignores the role of scientific expertise in saving so many of our lives. I, I and wanna, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. I was going to jump in with something because what you were saying just before you got to the point about scientists made me think about the sort of the, if you step out of the pandemic context and think about the debate around healthcare for the last two decades, really, it's been progressively moving towards more and more control. And we've seen during the pandemic, some of the consequences of those controls where the, the for example, hospitals can't just open a, a new location, they need to get permitting and then they can't increase the number of ICU beds in the way that if you are Zoom, you can increase the capacity of your servers. It, things that you would expect on a market to be possible just aren't possible because of all the controls and socialization that occurs in the healthcare space. And the consequent, one consequence of that on doctors and nurses, that it's a lot harder to do your job when you have to navigate so many new layers and layers of regulations. Now, I'm not saying they should, the point here is not that they shouldn't be using their best judgment in, in, and so forth, which I think people assume regulations make them do, which I don't think is the point. The point is that they need to exercise their judgment, but it's so much harder when they're um, their obstructions to doing that. They can't increase capacity. They can't get the job done. And that's another dimension of what it means to take the, the whole healthcare industry for granted not, and all the people who work there. And just to, if you think what people were talking about right before the pandemic, 
Medicare for all, right? That was one of the slogans we were, we were told is the direction and, and, you know, the Biden administration is committed to expanding Obamacare and fortifying it and re kind of expanding it in different ways uh, and protecting it from attempts to bring it down. Now, Obamacare or the ACA, American, the Affordable Care Act was, a, was another step towards socialization that was definitely moving us further on that road. So when you think of that and the whole idea the lesson of the pandemic is not that we need Medicare for all. It's the opposite. We need to help liberate doctors and nurses and the whole healthcare industry so that they can better. We, we've seen how broken the system it is. So to me, one of the lessons here is to, if you appreciate the work that they do, if you, if you see the value of just medicine as a field and healthcare as an industry, the argument should be in exactly the opposite direction. What can we do to re relieve them of all the obstacles that tripped them up during this period, that made it harder for them to acquire the resources and protective equipment and, and replan for, because this is not the only pandemic that's ever gonna happen, right? If anything, this has awakened people to the need for preparedness. And some of it is on, on the industry to be better uh, geared for it. And they can't do that if they're really constrained by these regulations. So that's a case where you've got an industry that's already very controlled and uh, where we suffer because of it. Uh, we've, <laughs> doctors and scientists have still managed to save many people's lives in spite of the controls, uh, but there's still all kinds of demonstrable ways in which we've suffered because of it. If not, if, you know, from the lack of resources to the lack of testing, we could go on and on, but then Compare that to uh, another industry, which is not yet that regulated, but where you've also said uh, there are people who've been saving us from the storm. And yet the gratitude that we should be giving them is replaced instead by more taking it for granted. And here again, I'm talking about the tech companies. You have uh, politicians on both sides of the spectrum who basically want to regulate the social media platforms as though they were utilities or, or as though they were natural resources that somehow someone has a monopoly on, uh, on the grounds that these companies sometimes actually want to set terms and conditions for the use of the platforms that they're providing to people for free, uh, as though computer networks were things that grew on trees uh, that uh, we have the right to use just because we have we want to because we have an opinion we want to express. Uh, this is the most uh, unjust lack of gratitude that I can really conceive of. Uh, and it's not just tech companies, it's, it's business in general, but it's especially pronounced in this industry, which is one of the currently one of the most uh, uncontrolled economic industries. And now we want to make it more controlled we know what consequences have come from that in industries like healthcare. We would we would really like to have our tech companies function as well as our healthcare bureaucracies. Is that really what we want? Yeah. What does that even look like? So so you know, Zoom needs to put out a new update. I mean, I get a Zoom update almost every other day. They're investing so much in their software. But imagine if they have to approve every update with a regulator who has an office at Zoom's headquarters. The way they were regulators seated at Microsoft's offices for many years after the the, the, law, the suit against uh, that company. And they have to, you know, 
check every step. May I do this? May I do that? And what does that do for the pace of their ability to run their company, to innovate, to compete? Imagine if we had the kind of shortages of if you, what is the equivalent of an ICU bed shortage in an area where you get internet companies unable to expand capacity because, oh, sorry, you can't join. You know, there's just too many people on the internet right now. You can't watch Netflix. Sorry, your neighbors are using all the capacity we have in the neighborhood. Who would tolerate that? And yet that's exactly what we see in healthcare. And that's the kind of thing, not particularly that example, but that kind of thing would be what we would have in store the more regulated those industries in tech become. So Elon, I think we should start to wrap up and take questions, um, but uh, just to wrap things up, uh, I, I referenced Atlas Shrugged a few times about the way it spotlights the value of uh, people like Reardon who's saving his family from the storm. How would you summarize the the common theme that we can take away from uh, some of the examples that we've considered today, uh, a theme which also appears, I think, in Atlas Shrugged? Yeah, I, one thought about Atlas Shrugged, as you mentioned it, and then I'll, I'll answer your question. I think Ayn Rand thought of it as a, a an act of justice. The book itself is an act of justice, a, a monumental act of justice, in my view, in the sense that it underlines and, and sort of brings to the surface the actual source of values in human life and the and what happens when that's uh, denied, negated, and undermined, and what it looks like to make it possible for the source of values, the human mind, to be left free. And so one, one suggestion for everyone here on Thanksgiving is if you have some time on your hands, to pick up a copy of Atlas Shrugged. It'll help attune you to the kinds of values that are fundamental in human life. Uh, but to draw some of the threads together from our conversation about Thanksgiving and some of the things we're seeing in our culture today. And again, we, we haven't, there's no attempt here to be exhaustive about all the heroic achievements going on. So I don't, but not mentioning some group or other does not mean we don't recognize them. It's just, we, we've had to be selective. Uh, I think the, the through line of all these is that it's, it's, the power of the human minds oriented to look at the facts and understand it and dedicated to truth and solving problems. That's what we're really highlighting here is that's what makes all these values possible. And that's a fund, that's a philosophic uh, identification that Ayn Rand really champions and, and brings us, makes us more attuned to thanks to her work. And it, if you cherish human life, you cherish progress and the kind of world that has been created in the last 200 years with the scientific revolution born on the heels of the enlightenment and all the developments through that, then it's important to recognize the creators and the thinkers and the doers, the producers, all of whom are using their minds to safeguard human life and, and create the values that we rely on all the time and so easily take for granted. So that's, that's sort of the main point of, of what we've been saying, but there's another, and I think slightly deeper kind of perspective here that Ayn Rand brings uh, for, us, for us to think about. This is what she calls the benevolent universe premise. It's, it's a view about the, so the, the nature of the world we live in. And my understanding of it is that fundamentally on her sort of identification, reality is open to human progress to achievement, to happiness. And that's not to deny that there are obstacles and challenges, that those are real, 
but fundamentally, if you understand the power of the human mind of, of, of rational thought, then you can be confident in, in principle in our ability to overcome obstacles and challenges and, and create the values needed uh, for us to succeed and thrive, regardless of what nature throws at us. And there's nothing, in other words, you can put it in the negative, there's nothing built into the nature or the fabric of, of reality that's set against us. It's up to us to use our minds to overcome obstacles and reshape the world in the service of human life. And that it's possible. And that that sort of orientation to the world is no, no matter how bad things are, there's a, if we, you know, there's a way to get out of it in principle to kind of create values and overcome obstacles rather than succumbing to, yeah, life is impossible, nature is set against us, which is sort of the, the opposite perspective, which I think we should reject. And I'll say uh, somewhat ironically, amen to that. Because, and it's, it's ironic because it's, it's notable how, how different this view is from the view that I started out describing as the historical roots of Thanksgiving, that we don't, the view here is that we don't live in a satanic wilderness where fortunes and misfortunes are doled out by a scheming God to whom we have to, uh, you know, submit ourselves, that we can actually discover the principles of nature and, and make it on our own. And those who do better at it than we do, we should thank them because they figured out something, they've seen something that we haven't seen ourselves. Um, so we should, we should take questions. Uh, anyone who is watching on YouTube should consider the super chat function. Uh, that's a way to get your question to rise to the top by making a donation in support of the channel. Otherwise, if you're watching on Zoom, uh, please use the Q&A module. It's the best way to submit questions to us. Hover over your screen, hit that Q&A button. We'll, we'll take questions there. And Elon, what do you think we should get started with? Well, I just, I see some comments here from, um, someone who's offering some factual corrections about my comment on the mumps vaccine. So I, I, thanks for the comments. I, I presented it as an outlier, but the, the commenter is saying it wasn't quite the outlier I'm presenting. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected. Thanks for that. And uh, I, I don't mean to minimize the achievement of people who created the mumps vaccine or the people working on the COVID vaccine. So um, appreciate you uh, bringing that to light. So um, we have, some comments here. One thing I would say is that, um, so we have a question as well about, have we thought of doing an op-ed or an article on thanking the heroes in, in various p industries? And um, we have actually published a number of articles over the years, we could probably surface them in the show notes uh, on Thanksgiving from different perspectives, uh, including thanking the producers, because I think, um, the, the passages you quoted from Atlas Shrugged, one of them obviously was of a Thanksgiving meal. And I think part of what Ayn Rand was conveying in that scene is that it's producers fundamentally, people who think uh, and create and, and uh, make the world full of values that deserve thanks and aren't getting it. And so we've had articles showcasing that point. Um, and we're, I, we're happy to do more articles in the future as um, we've written other things about the people in the pandemic. So thanks for the encouragement. We'd be happy to do more. Uh, and I think it's a good time, uh, Ben, to, to talk about the fact that all of the work that we do deserves 
a certain thanks to the people who support the Ayn Rand Institute. And this is a good time to do it. Yeah, and I made a special screen just for this purpose, <laughs> using the technology that I was given by some of these creators. Thank you uh, to the donors who make this podcast possible. You are on uh, among uh, the unsung, some of the unsung heroes that we've been talking about, uh, not just because of the wealth that you created, but because of the choices that you made about how to share it with us uh, for the sake of recognizing uh, others like you and what you've done uh, to help us live in a better world. Um, so Ben, I, I just want to ask you a question because you, you know, we were talking a little bit when we were preparing for today's broadcast about the origins of Thanksgiving. And you mentioned that there's a um, something interesting about Abraham Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation. Did you want to share that? Yeah. So like I said before, the, uh, there wasn't a annual November holiday until 1863. Uh, this was issued, a proclamation was issued by Abraham Lincoln. This is in November of 1863. And I think it's interesting to look at some of the things that Lincoln says in his proclamation, now you can see to the that, that to a large extent he shares the worldview uh, of the American Puritans uh, that I was talking about before of wanting to thank God uh, for uh, things that have gone well for the nation. But it's also interesting to look at the things that he says has gone well that have gone well. So I'll read a little bit from the proclamation here. He says. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict, while that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union. Needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements and the mines, as well as, of, as well of iron and coal, as of the precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Uh, now he goes on to say, uh, no human counsel hath devised nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They're the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. But that's, I, I think that's a remarkable juxtaposition of things to say, because on the one hand, he shares this traditional view that says, to, we, go, we owe God thanks for all the good things that have happened. We're, you know, we can only blame ourselves for the bad things. But he's just listed a whole series of things that are uh, happening in 1863, which are demonstrably the work of human hands. Uh, so he mentions there's peace in the parts of the country where there is no war. Foreign states have not intervened. Here he's talking, there were fears that Britain was going to intervene in the war. Well, Britain was convinced uh, by its, many of its abolitionist citizens that no, we shouldn't side with the Confederacy. He talks about how the theater of war has contracted so that the Union armies have uh, taken uh, control uh, over more of the country. This is in fall of 1863. This is after uh, some of the <clears throat> major turning points in the war, including especially Gettysburg. 
uh, and Vicksburg, which really brought the, the put a corral around uh, the Confederacy. This is, this is due to the work of generals like, like Grant. And of course, uh, many thousands of American soldiers who died to make this possible. Uh, and then, of course, he talks about the advance of industry. I mean, this is this is when the Industrial Revolution is happening more, much more in the north than in the south. Uh, that's part of what made it possible for the Union to win the war. Uh, this is not an accident for the reasons that we've talked about either. And of course, you know, a lot of this is due to Lincoln himself, whose leadership uh, guided us through this war. So. It's, it's a very strange thing to say we should thank God for all the good things and only blame ourselves for the sins. And there's clearly many wise and rational choices being made by men and women in this period of time that have brought them through this conflict. And to, you know, those are the people that actually deserve the thanks. So maybe we should draw a line here and wish everyone listening and watching a uh, happy Thanksgiving and uh, encourage you to take a moment to reflect on some of the achievements that we've been talking about and the individuals who make them possible through their use of reason and their commitment to facts and truth. Yes, thanks, Ilan. So let me just uh, wrap up with a few reminders. Uh, first, some resources for anyone who'd like to know more about the ideas that we discussed today. We referenced Atlas Shrugged on a number of point, at a number of points in our discussion. Uh, we didn't give away the major spoilers. So if you're watching, uh, if you're learning about this book for the first time, that is always a good place to go to find out more about the ideas of Ayn Rand. Uh, also a few articles on subjects that came up today, uh, all of them by Elon. Uh, I referenced first an article that he wrote where he discussed the Thanksgiving scene in Atlas Shrugged. That's in a book, that's in an article of his that he published for New Ideal called Thanksgiving, the Producer's Holiday. If you'd like to go directly that, to that article, you can go to bit.ly slash thanks hyphen producers. And then Elon also produced a three-part series uh, called Unsung Heroes of the Pandemic. Someone asked a question about uh, whether uh, ARI should be producing articles thanking the heroes. Well, Elon wrote three. Thank you, Elon. And uh, you, can, you can see all of those if you go to bit.ly slash pandemic hyphen heroes. Uh, or just go to newideal.einrand.org to explore uh, more of the ideas that we have on tap there. And as always, if you have thoughts or ideas that you'd like to send us, the best way to do that directly is through email. Send us an email at newideal.einrand.org. We read all the email that comes in. We respond to a lot of it. Sometimes we even will do new episodes based on ideas that you suggest to us. So uh, we'll wrap up with that. Uh, and again, thank our donors who made uh, this uh, possible for us today. And I want to thank you all for joining us and to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.